Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. We are broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website. All podcasts are available on iTunes and our webpage, actually. Joining me in the studio is Andy Medic from the Animal Justice Party. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And we've also, I'm just about to call Charlie Jackson-Martin, who is the founder of Sydney Fox Rescue. And we're talking about the deadly and cruel poison 1080 today. So we'll be back after this. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. You are tuned into Freedom of Species and hopefully I have Charlie Jackson-Martin from Sydney Fox Rescue on the phone. Are you there, Charlie? Uh, Sure, am. Thanks for having us on the show. Excellent. Thanks for making time for us today. Look, foxes in Australia are promptly dismissed as a nasty pest and to be rid of quickly. And getting rid of them is even afforded a noble stigma, isn't it, when it comes to conservation efforts Um, to protect a native species or gentle newborn lambs. I mean, you don't have to go far, do you, Andy, to hear of heartbreaking stories of friends that have woken up to, like, their beloved feathered friends massacred in the the chicken coop. And all these stories um, seem to collectively garner an automatic press of a detonator button in our public conscience, enabling this social licence for them to be killed by whatever needs necessary. And in doing that, we ignore the gritty details for others like 
large property owners and national parks to deal with because, well, we... We think they know the best and they know the land, don't they? You know, we, we don't. We're kind of living in our city cubes or somewhere else where we don't deal with the land or indeed animals. Now, one of the cruelest methods we use to kill foxes is this 1080. Now, Charlie, you've taken up this baton of advocacy with your 1080 campaign. But before we get into that, for people that haven't heard about your organisation, can you um, tell us about Sydney Fox Rescue and why it started? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Sydney Fox Rescue is a registered not-for-profit. Um, we exist to rescue, care for, rehome and advocate for so-called pest species. Um, so that doesn't just include foxes for us. That That's also dingoes, cats, rabbits and any other animal that might have, I guess, been forgotten or ignored by existing animal welfare organisations. We're sort of there to fill that that gap and um, and be a voice for some animals that a lot of Australians might have otherwise forgotten or the sort of animals, I suppose, that the government spends more time trying to kill than actually considering their welfare and, and their humane treatment. Um, at the end of the day, introduced species didn't didn't choose to come here and they, they're here now, they're, they're not going away and, and we need to find more compassionate ways to live with them and, and that's what we're sort of here to do to try and find those compassionate ways and um, and advocate for those animals that that nobody else is really speaking on behalf of. Because there is an ethical um, dilemma there, isn't there, how we treat what we label pest or indeed vermin, feral animals are, you know, treated very differently than other animals. In fact, our treatment of them is enabled by, they're exempt from details in the Animal Cruelty Act, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's actually a really sort of sad state of affairs that they they are treated so differently. I mean, in particular, because some of the animals that we really hold, you know, nearest and dearest to us, our companion animals, like cats and dogs, for example, are also introduced animals. But foxes, um, and I would sort of argue other animals like dingoes and rabbits, by virtue of being labelled a pest, become killable. So not only are they sort of, it's accepted that they can be killed, but the government is actually sort of approving and encouraging um, the numerous and unthinkable ways that we do kill these animals. You know, we trap them, we shoot them, we poison them, we gas them in their dens, and it sort of doesn't matter whether it's urban or rural, um, this type of inhumane and excessive um, killing and extermination goes on for, for these animals, um, under sometimes under the banner of conservation, unfortunately. Mm. It, it's very easy for the general public to forget that we're dealing with individuals here in these populations, individual individual sentient beings. And so the focus today is 1080 poison. I can't believe, you know, a lot of people, when I say 1080, they don't know what it is. So, Andy, I think I might just ask you here, sorry, guys, but I think we need to go into the gritty detail of 1080 poison and mm. how it works before we get into the widespread usage of it. Andy, can you take us through, and I guess there's a bit of a warning here for listeners that don't want to hear this. Um, take us through the mechanics of 1080 poison and how it actually kills the individual. Thanks, Em, and, and hi, Charlie. Look, um, 1080 is without doubt perhaps the, the single most inhumane poison in, in use in Australia and New Zealand, who are the two largest users of it in the world. The mechanics of it are that... Depending on the dosage, it can take many hours to kill, anywhere from three to five hours up into days, depending on the, the dosage rate. And it starts with 
the animal uh, suffering from a bit of looks like confusion, staggering, uh, blindness as another common early onset uh, symptom. Uh, they will go into seizures. Um, many animals uh, have been observed to uh, under the intense pain that this produces to slam themselves against hard objects such as trees, cars, walls, where, you know, where domestic dogs, for instance, have been affected. Um, it then runs through a whole gamut of things through these seizures, including liquef- liquefaction of internal organs, vomiting of blood, um, excretion through the anus, you know, like, so basically pooing blood and, and partial internal organs, etc. All of this happens while the animal is still alive. And conscious. And conscious. Obviously of pain. And, and, and absolutely conscious of pain. Um, all the while that this is also happening, these full body seizures continue to happen. Um, one of the things that, that, that you'll notice particularly, because um, there are a few videos around of, of dogs suffering these, these seizures and, and going through 1080, the, the final sort of instances of 1080 poisoning, um, these seizures are, are typified by complete lengthening of the legs. Like they, they, The body just absolutely seizes right up and goes dead straight. Their jaws open right up like absolutely wide open, and some have been known to dislocate from the, the, the muscle stricture, um, all of which, as I say, while the animal is alive. The eventual thing that happens, of course, is that the animal does pass away. But it, and, and as I say, this is an eventuality. This is not, you know, it, it's very, very rare for an animal to survive a 1080 poisoning, extremely rare, because even in low dosages, it will kill, and it will kill in this manner. And as I say, it can put to, and it doesn't kill immediately. This isn't something that hops on and starts in about three minutes and is over in five minutes, for instance. This is around three to five hours at a standard dosage rate, mm. and and a low dosage rate can happen over days, and and particularly on an animal like the horses and cows, for instance, have been affected, and it has taken literally days for the animal to die, and they're in this intense pain for the whole time. And it, it, it's important to note, like, this information is also on the government websites. They go through the listings of, you know, it, they admit that the animal will be in a lot of pain for whether it be an hour or two or, or um, That's you right. know, whatever, there's different levels. Um, now, as far as foxes are concerned, Charlie, um, can we just get back to, uh, well, basically, where are we deploying these baits when it comes to foxes? Yeah, so when it comes to foxes, um, they're not, you know, the baiting isn't just limited, unfortunately. You know, it's not just happening in rural areas. It is actually happening in urban areas as well. So it happens in anywhere there's sort of national parks or parkland, um, anywhere where there's enough of a distance from a house. I think they say 100 metres in New South Wales, for example, from a house you're allowed to lay bait. Um, it's happening in areas that are not just frequented by foxes, obviously, but um, as we just heard, you know, it's an indiscriminate poison. It affects a whole variety of other animals, native and introduced. Um, and it's in parklands where you've got companion animals like dogs, but also obviously national parks where you've got native animals like flaskagales and quolls and, um, and dingoes, of course, who are also going to be hugely affected um, by 1080. And, um, and then when you're, when you're talking about rural areas, they're also doing aerial drops of baits where they're literally dropping it indiscriminately from helicopters across huge, um, huge portions of land um, to be consumed by any animal, not just foxes. Can I ask you, Charlie, I mean, I know I can't speak for New South Wales, of course, but I can say that in Victoria, for instance, one of those aerial drops takes place in quite inaccessible bushland in Gippsland. 
And what they've done is, is they, the government's actually admitted that this aerial dropping is happening in areas where they can't even go in to recover unused baits and they can't recover the animals that have been affected and therefore there's no um, logging or, or, or you know, documentation of how effective the baiting program has been. So they're basically just going in and dropping these baits and going, yeah, there's wild dogs there, um, we're going to kill them off and we're not going to even know if it's been effective or not. Yeah, look, absolutely. There's so little accountability, in particular in New South Wales, because they're giving it out to private landholders and those landholders are not obligated to record, you know, how many baits are taken, which, you know, how the animals are affected. You know, they're giving out, you know, a toxic substance that's a class eight poison and they're giving it to private individuals with minimal training to go out and put on their properties. And, and then, of course, yeah, you've also got the aerial drops in really inaccessible areas. And there's just, if anything, the data is showing that, uh, you know, in some cases, um, there was one study by Murdoch University, I believe, that was showing 99% of baits being taken by non-target species. Um, and in areas like that where they are really dense bushland and they're not going in to recover animals that have been killed, there's no way to know how effective it is on um, and, and what the effects are on non-target species. Even if we were assuming a 100% uptake by target species, no, no animal deserves to experience those kind of symptoms or that kind of pain. That's why it's been, been banned in so many other places in the world. You know, we're one of the last developed nations left using this, this kind of toxic substance um, to kill our wildlife. <laughs> So basically when someone starts a campaign in their local area or you want to stop the use of 1080 in an area, um, it, it's usually in response to a particular uptake of, you know, 1080 is being used here for just foxes. I mean, they put it across like that. And as you guys have just spoken about, there are many non-target species that get the baits and, and, um, and consequently die, including our domestic pets. Um, uh, sorry, companion animals. We've had farmers on freedom of species um, n- stop using 1080 because they've witnessed their pet dog or their close associated working dog accidentally getting a bait and they've yeah, witnessed absolutely. that death and they've, that's the deal breaker. They don't use it anymore because mm. they have a whole bag of other kind of um, things they can use to manage their land so they don't have to use 1080 it's not like 1080 or nothing else Um, but it is a very concerning thing when you hear about one the the extreme suffering that 1080 tortures the individual with but the widespread usage you commented on like we're using it throughout national parks and throughout Australia is that all the time? Well, yeah, well, it is. It's happening all the time. I can tell you, for instance, that once every six months where I am, and, and Charlie, to give you a sort of a, a geographical location, I live mm. on the surf mm. coast down near Bells yep. Beach in Victoria, and every six months in the Anglesey Heath, there's a 1080 bagging program, ostensibly for foxes. Uh, it happens every six months, and it, it's been going on for years. I mean, I've been down there for over 20 years, um, close mm. on 27 years, and in all that period, you would think if this is an effective means of, of era- pest eradication that this would have been successful by now and the population would have been, if not decimated, it would have been wiped out. And, and it's testimony to the fact that, that it doesn't work. That it doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it, it doesn't take a huge understanding of ecology to see why this wouldn't work as well in the case of foxes. I mean, particularly around 
uh, where I am, which is um, sort of southwest outskirts of Sydney, um, down toward Picton, um, we have a similar program, and particularly for wild dogs and foxes, as we come into their breeding season, that's when they really start to pick up baiting efforts in our area, unfortunately. And um, and I guess what they fail to understand is that this sort of indiscriminate killing really disrupts family groups and disrupts populations. And there's some some data now sort of coming out in South Australia and Victoria. Um, and I've seen data in dingoes as well, but I'm not quite sure where that was from. But in foxes, it's actually showing increases or population eruptions after baiting because what they're doing is, is destabilising the family groups that might have only had one breeding female and um, and what they're doing in, in sort of fracturing that group or killing some of those individuals is causing offshoot family groups to crop up in other places. And I think that's the thing is that um, these animals are so widespread now um, and they're here and they've been here for, you know, over 100 years. They're not, they're not going away and what we're doing is just causing small you know, either, you know, downfalls in population and then that population is going to re-stabilise and re-correct and we need to be looking at ways to coexist as opposed to this really flawed assumption that we're ever going to get rid of foxes. Um, Absolutely. And and this is also backed up. I mean, I've done a fair bit of work with um, Adam O'Neill in Queensland and with uh, Arian Wallach, who who back up Mm. absolutely everything you've just said there. And and their particular area of expertise is is in dingoes, and they specifically look at the decimation of the familial hierarchy that's caused by 1080 poison, in that there's a male and female, alpha, alpha male and alpha female, and that when... When these these attacks uh, upon those familial structures occur, that that is broken down, and that then causes these animals to interbreed them with domesticated dogs, which then in turn breaks down this this whole hunting structure that they've had. Um, and then again, when they are successful in wiping out dingoes in these particular areas, foxes then just move in because we're talking yeah. about two types of apex predator, mm-hmm. and and our our faunal structure is reliant upon this whole structure of, of, of an ecosystem all the way from small mammals right the way up to the apex predator. And, and it's, it's replicated when you talk about oceans. You know, it, it's, it's exactly mm-hmm. the same on land. If you remove an individual species or food group, if you like, from that structure, that ecological structure something collapses around it and causes a major problem. And this is what we're seeing with 1080 Mm, poison. It does it. It's incredibly short-sighted. And I think that's the other thing is that it's a very, it's a quick fix solution that the government and the local land services like to put out there to try and say that they're doing something um, without looking at a a broader picture and looking at an ecosystem. And, you know, the, the problem, of course, with, as you said, suppressing dingo populations is that you then get an influx of foxes. And one of the best ways to reduce fox numbers in an area is the kind of predator-friendly farming or agriculture that, that nurtures local dingo populations and looks at ways to deter dingoes from coming into farms and around stock um, without killing dingoes. And that'll, in of itself, just the, just the presence of dingoes will actually sort of drive foxes out of the area because they don't like to coexist. Um, but, you know, nurturing dingoes... <laughs> is not always, you know, favourable to the agricultural industry. And, of course, again, removing both dingoes and foxes from an area, you're going to see, in the case of foxes, a huge influx of rabbits or black rats. So 
by taking out one introduced species, we potentially cause a, a population eruption in another introduced species. It's not as simple as um, as just sort of exterminating an entire, you know, an entire species in an area and expecting there to be no negative changes um, within other species in that ecosystem. You are tuned into Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM, and we are chatting with. Charlie from Sydney Fox Rescue and Andy Medic from the Animal Justice Party, specifically about 1080 poison, which we use in a huge amount um, to kill foxes, but it also kills a lot of other animals while we're at it. And we've just heard it, it kills our apex predator in Australia, the dingo, but usually under these um, baiting licenses for killing wild dogs so i think people get confused don't they they think oh they're just killing wild dogs and they're a menace but 1080 is killing our apex predator the dingo which as we looks after the ecology from what you've just um or the Mm. biodiversity in a very healthy way for free 24 hours a day so it it definitely it sounds like it works it definitely kills but it um it obviously isn't working in the long in the long run. Yeah, well, and one yeah. of the problems too, Emma, is, is that when you talk about ten eighty poison, you and 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 you're right when you talk about yes, it does kill. And but and and I come back to the point Charlie made before about you know the studies that have proven that around ninety nine percent of baits taken are taken by the non target species. That's an incredibly unacceptable ratio. And not only that, but then we have to start to consider the on-flow effects that this poison has. This is a poison that can stay live in the dead carcass of an animal for months at a time, depending on the dosage rate and the weather conditions. So secondary contamination and even then tertiary contamination can occur and often does. And then this is where you could begin to have a, another problem in that, for instance, if you have, for instance, let's say a fox has taken a bait and, and a, a fairly intense bait, um, that stays in that system. In a, sorry to interrupt, but it's a meat bait. Yes. Because I know mm. that some people come out in defence and say, no, we bury them. We bury the bait so specifically, you know, non-target species wouldn't get it. But the fact is a lot of the baits that we put out there are meat baits and they mm. remain above ground. Is that right? They, and if yeah. I can just chime in, even the buried baits, the, the problem is that foxes have a, an astounding ability to regurgitate you know, regurgitate nasty things. I mean, they're a scavenging animal. Part of their evolution is that when they eat something that isn't good for them is that they will often regurgitate it. So they're moving baits. They're, mm. move, they're, you know, they're, they're consuming baits. They're travelling potentially several kilometres to another area, perhaps to a property that hasn't agreed to use 1080 bait, and then they're regurgitated. So even for landholders who are not opting into these sort of poison programs, they're still at risk and people's animals are still at risk in, because these baits are, are travelling. They're travelling with foxes and with other animals who are then regurgitating them and, and as we said, you know, potentially surviving for months afterwards then in the carcasses or in the regurgitated vomit of these animals. And there's also... Um I'm not sure up up, up there, but I know that in Victoria there's some anecdotal evidence that this is happening where foxes are entering urban areas as well when they're doing their scavenging. Look, it it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, foxes will often have a territory of up to five kilometres in some areas. They're also going to be very disorientated potentially once they have been poisoned and acting abnormally and acting in in real sort of stress and and potentially, yeah, certainly coming into areas that they might not normally come into. We, We do certainly get a lot of calls 
um, that we would assume are foxes behaving under the symptoms of bait and, and certainly in urban areas as well. When we, when we sort of have the symptoms described to us, we'll often go, that's an animal that's been baited and it might be quite a distance from anywhere that we would consider to be a normal or an area that we're aware that baiting is going on in because they do travel. Do you mind if I sort of... I want to continue on that and come back to that bit if I can, but I just wanted to sort of run down a different avenue. It's just occurred to me listening mm. to you speak, Charlie. What's the legal status of what you're doing in New South Wales can, around foxes? Um, because when we look at the narrative, because this is what it all comes back to, because there's a legislative and, uh, uh, and um, a communal narrative that foxes are this pest that we have to eradicate under mm. all circumstances. Um what is the legal status of what you guys do in New South Wales now? Because if you, you could be fighting against something that you know could potentially see you facing charges. Is, is that open? Sure. Yeah. No. No. Look. Absolutely. So until um, the end of two thousand and fourteen, mid two thousand and fifteen, it was legal to rescue, house, treat, um, and keep in captivity um, foxes. So our program worked with injured and orphaned animals, um, providing vet care, desexing those animals, and for the most part then rehoming those animals um, to live with sort of qualified wildlife carers in captivity. Um, that legislation has now changed, and it's now not only illegal for us to rescue foxes and care for them or provide vet care for them, um, but it's also illegal to actually even transport an injured fox to a vet even to be euthanized. So that's now uh, a finable offence with $8,000, carrying an $8,000 fine. Um, And so for us, that sort of meant that, you know, when when somebody does sort of want to do the right thing and want to help a fox, even if it's that simple act of compassion in terms of maybe a fox that has been baited or has been hit by a car that just needs to be put out of their misery, even transporting them, you know, has now been criminalised. So we're really, I guess, pushing back and, and fighting against that and doing everything we can to support people who do want to do the right thing. Um, We have 12 of our own rescue foxes that we do have permits for. Any foxes rescued prior to the legislative change were granted permits, Um, but they're refusing in New South Wales. The New South Wales government and the local land services are refusing to issue any new permits for the rescue of foxes sort of leading into the future, and that's what we're really trying to push back against, I guess, and and lobby for at the moment. Um, we're coming into one of our, our busiest period for, for rescue animals, um, for foxes, you know, with the widespread use of baiting, also road accidents, shooting, things like that. Um, when foxes breed, there's a, an abundance, I guess, of orphaned animals um, in need around September, October, November. Um, there's a huge amount of young animals in need of help, and that's our, our busiest period. And, and this year, you know, it'll be illegal to help those animals in New South Wales, um, bringing us, I guess, into line with many of the other states. WA is the only state where it's still legal to actually assist um, foxes in need and keep them in captivity. All we can do now in New South Wales um, is advise people on how they can help foxes in the wild without bringing them into captivity for vet care. Um, or if they are trapped and brought into captivity, the only legal option is euthanasia. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously you're still getting calls. You can't stop people from being compassionate and wanting to help another no, individual in, in pain and distress. I mean, look, I know I go on floral wanderings occasionally, but seriously, when, you know, I have this whole interest at the moment about researching violence in society, but mm. it's like, what what message are we getting from that? It's like, okay, you don't help another. You, you, okay, let's not be compassionate against, you know, with 
it's it's bizarre. And I mean, mm. for us, the thing is, the foxes don't know the legislation has changed. A lot of mm. members of the community, and and I will say, you know, eighty five percent of our calls come from rural Australia. They come from places that people might not expect, and from people who might have in the past actually hunted foxes, ah. but. You know, when they see an animal in need, an animal that's hurting or that's orphaned or that's been injured, there there is an amount of compassion or a response that I think or I hope is really an innate human response to try and do the right thing and to try and help these animals. Um, and it, it's a horrible message to send to the public. And I think that the problem... Um, or oh, well, not a problem in our eyes, but certainly what the government saw a problem with our, our rescue and rehoming efforts in foxes, um, or what we were told is that Sydney Fox Rescue was changing the public perception of foxes in New South Wales. And the concern was that if uh, members of the public started to see foxes in a setting as companion animals or as animals that, um, you know, did have personalities and quirks and were affectionate with people and had these family groups, um, that it might impact on things like the use of 1080 bait. And in the same way that we might say we would never let you use that on a dog, you know, if you use 1080 bait on someone's dog, that's a that's a criminal offence under the Protection of Cruelty to, to Animals Act. But if you use 1080 bait on a fox, you know, that's encouraged and legal. Um, and I think that change in perception um, was what the government was really scared of in the case of rescue foxes. It wasn't that rescue foxes were doing any harm. These were desexed animals living in captivity, um, you know, who were doing nothing except sort of advocacy work for other foxes and trying to sort of show this other side that we don't normally see. But that in of itself was so radical that it had to be stopped. And it's interesting, isn't it, because what you were doing was actually better for conservation in a way because, as you mentioned, um, all kinds of people, farmers and across mm. the community bring, you know, foxes to you that need to be rehabilitated or or attended to. And the fact is that... Um, you know, you can't you can't stop people from doing that, can you? No, and the problem, I guess, without you know, with that discontinuing of rescue permits, is that there are still going to be people trying to help. There are still going to be foxes that need help, um, but now there's no way to regulate that. There's no way to ensure that those animals are receiving proper veterinary care. There's no way to ensure that the housing is suitable and adequate, that people have proper enclosures. So you're saying They've people will out. go ahead and do do it and people probably will go release... Ahead and try it. Yeah. yeah, and potentially release them, yeah. There's, there's no way now to ensure that, you know, people are just going to do what they can to get by and to help these animals and some people are going to do the right thing and perhaps some people are not, you know, are going to try their best but, but without access to vet care, you know, we can't ensure that the animals are going to be desexed. We don't know yeah. where the people are going to release them if they can't keep them in captivity. Um, and, and that's our sort of one of our biggest fears is that there's no oversight anymore and, and no sort of centralisation to ensure these animals are being looked after and, and provided for. You are listening to Freedom of Species and we might just have a bit of a break. We'll listen to Cat Empire's Wild Animals. You are tuned in to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855am. Uh, we are chatting about 1080 poison, a very cruel, 
horrific way to kill an individual, um, which we deploy in huge amounts in Australia. And uh, with me today is Charlie Jackson-Martin from Sydney Fox Rescue and Andy Medic from Animal Justice Party. Now, um, Charlie, it, it's really difficult, isn't it, to... Um, to gain neutral ground when discussing or proposing a humane treatment of any labelled pest species, isn't it? Because we're so, you know, I mentioned before all those heartbreaking scenarios you hear about lambs being half mauled, beloved chooks being massacred, conservation efforts defiantly protecting particular species. It can be so complicated and divisive. We really need to forage beyond those emotions, don't we, from this deceptive way of thinking Listen yeah. more attentively to what yeah the red fox does in the biodiversity. Um, considering that a complete eradication is is not going to happen, we can't completely eradicate this pest. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I don't think that emotion doesn't have a role to play. I do think that emotion is important whenever we sort of talk about animals and when and in terms of looking at animals as individuals and not as populations, there's always going to be a role for empathy. And um, that said, though, I think something that's sort of important to remember when we do look at uh, chickens and, and sheep and things like and livestock losses is that these are also introduced species um, and that if we're going to have chickens and we're going to have livestock, you know, and lambs and sheep, that we do have some, you know, farmers also have some responsibility to protect those animals from predators. Um, the fox doesn't understand that that is, um, you know, that that animal um, belongs to someone. The fox is doing what comes naturally to it. And there's certainly some really fantastic technologies out there for fox proofing. There's things like fox lights now. Um, certainly guard animals are a long-used tradition in terms of deterring, deterring foxes and things like that. And um, certainly if we, we can keep our rescue foxes in, then people can keep foxes out of their ticking coop. Um, but they, they do have really complex interactions with the ecology, and I think that's something that people don't realise is that they do have a... Uh, they've been here now, you know, since the 1840s, and they do have a, a role in some ways um, to play. Certainly um, their preferred prey or their preferred food sources in most areas are rabbits and black rats, um, and so when you remove foxes, you'll often see explosions in the numbers of those other introduced species um, by virtue of removing the foxes. They're, they're big scavengers as well. So they do a lot of cleaning up of roadkill and carcasses. Um, and you'll see them come through after other culls have come through an area. Um, that's sort of their, their preference. It's a really interesting point that you make there. And I, I think people and, and, and government need to recognise, because it, it's, it, it's something that is lost, is that before European invasion of this continent, there was an entire faunal hierarchy and ecosystem here, and we've interfered with that. The, the, the part of that ecosystem that the fox belongs to is a European construct. It's rabbits, livestock such as chickens and cows, mm. and foxes. These are all an introduced system right? that's existing now on a continent that they weren't on before. And... It, we need to now look at, okay, how do we fundamentally change how we view that ecology? How do we manage that ecology mm. in the best interests mm. of all of that, that now exist here? Because if we accept that, that you know, Australia's faunal hierarchy as a result has undergone a fundamental shift as a result of that interference, the fox is now firmly entrenched in that hierarchy. And, and, and we have to ask the question, do we... Do we accept that that shift has happened? 
and then find a way forward. Absolutely. I mean, there's no going back in time now and removing the sort of damage that we've done. And I think an interesting statistic that we often tell people and that surprises people is that, you know, while we have um, around 7 million foxes, we believe, in Australia, um, we're looking at numbers of, of cattle, for example, that exceed, you know, 170 million. So in some ways, foxes are just a very small part of the changes that, that the colonists and the, that the white men, you know, coming to Australia has made to the environment and that land clearing and animal agriculture are by far, you know, the most destructive force in terms of our native environment and our ecology and nobody's sort of talking about removing those things when we start to have conversations about removing foxes or removing rabbits. Um, the sort of elephant in the room is always animal agriculture, which we don't, we never sort of discuss removing that. And I think that, the biggest driving force um, in terms of the use of 1080 and the continued use of 1080 is not wildlife groups. You know, wildlife groups and wildlife organisations are often these days coming out and speaking out against the use of 1080 bait because of the the um, implications for native animals. Um, it's the very, you know, deep pockets of the agriculture industry that are continuing um, to push the use of this, this toxic poison um, to protect, you know, the introduced animals that they, you know, that they profit from being sort of, you know, chickens and cows and sheep um, at the expense of, of foxes and, and even dingoes, you know, at the expense of dingoes being a native animal as well. So, And, and do, you, do you mind if I ask you a question? Is Do you know in New South Wales, for instance, if there's a central registry for how many 1080 programs are underway? Um, I believe it would be the local land services, so they're certainly... Um, the, the people who coordinate most of the programs that we're aware of in terms of baiting and they coordinate the programs in, in our area. They interestingly also control fox permits. Um, <laughs> so, you know, put, put the people who hate foxes in charge of fox permits. Yeah. Um, the, I, yeah. I, look, I'll admit that was a bit of a loaded question because I went through the exercise a couple of years ago here in Victoria mm. and I rang mm. um, what we now call Delwip. Um, mm. who were in charge at the time, and they couldn't even tell me how many programs they were running. So that's a Department of sure. Environment, Land, sure. Water and... Yeah, exactly. Um, and and they told me I would have to ring every individual office who, and then would give me the numbers of all the individual yeah. branches and ring those and then Landcare, yeah. all I mean, the different ones. That would certainly be the case of the local land services. They're very... Um, departmentalised, like there's, very, there's sort of individual departments right across the state. And then, of course, you do have those other environmental groups like Landcare as well running mm. programs. So, um, And just so many individual landholders that are, you know, that are, are approved to use 1080. It's not a difficult process, unfortunately. It's, we're handing out a class A toxic poison like candy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's frightening, isn't it? It's really, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's quite something out of, you know, dystopian science fiction sometimes. When you look at the use of 1080, this indiscriminate lethal poison with no antidote being thrown from helicopters, and mm. then that in conjunction with um, deadly, poorly understood viruses like Khaleesi, it, it does feel like being in some sort of dystopian sci-fi novel sometimes. And, and I, I think it's important also to point out that this is a poison that has been banned in so many countries and continents around the world. Mm. Um, and yet Australia and New Zealand, interestingly, we make up over 60% of the worldwide usage of this poison. Now, that says a lot about our whole attitude towards uh, what we regard as pest species, you know, and how we deal with them. Mm. 
yeah, look, we're just, um, we have a really bizarre and really backward culture of how we approach animals um, and conservation in this country, unfortunately. Like, I, do, I do think that that is gradually changing and, and people, like you said, Aaron Wallach and other proponents of compassionate conservation are moving away from those sort of techniques and I, I hope that that is a, you know, a pathway that we continue to see actually legislators and politicians move down in the future as we yeah, try to follow the rest of the world and, and, and ban 1080 bait. And as you say, there is a movement. Um, you mentioned Centre for Compassionate Conservation is a great one, but the Dingo for Biodiversity Project, which is Aaron Wallach, um, Adam O'Neill that you mentioned, um, they have a great feral blog on their website that actually goes through all these what we call pest species, the fox, the camel, blah, 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 and she goes through the role they actually play in, in the biodiversity and focuses on the reality of um, of what each species does because we, you know, the average Joe Blow doesn't know the, the positives. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting to see people coming out and in some ways sort of celebrating um, introduced species or so-called pest species and, and recognising that the interactions they have with the Australian environment are complex. You know, sometimes they're negative, sometimes they're positive, Um you know, that they are driving adaptation in native animals, that they're interacting with other introduced animals like rabbits and, and black rats in the case of foxes, as we said, but that it's a much more complex relationship than I think the government um, and the agricultural industry would, would like people to think. And I, I guess adding to that is the whole, you hear people talking about, you know, climate change is coming in as well as a proponent and, you know, species are always on the move. So you've got that you know, global change of where uh, one country's introduced species will will be another one's endangered, threatened species. So it's kind of, yeah, everything's changing. And to look at, I think there was a great article um, the other day, excuse my paper shuffling, but I think I've got a copy of it here, um, where he refers to, no, I don't, unfortunately, um, you, we, we've got to stop using the past photographs, I think he's the word, the photograph of biodiversity we had. We, it's just madness. We've got to, it's not saying forfeiting all kinds of management and being irresponsible, but it's like we, we're using these outdated pictures of what we want the biodiversity to look like and Absolutely. trying to get back to that. And it's a bit like, you know, trying to fit into your old size two school shoes or something. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but it's also relevant in that respect because it by looking at it in such a backward manner, we're using methods in 2017 that are also based upon that. I mean, in in terms of management, look, look, if you understand that there is an, an apex predator at the, the top of a faunal hierarchy and, and if you accept that, then there's a couple of things that you need to do and one of those things is that you need to protect that apex predator system legislatively. You need to safeguard, for instance, dingoes against this whole narrative and, and poisoning and shooting system and, and, and of 1080 and, and that sort of thing too so that you're removing that, that whole structure. You, know, you need to remove the dingo from that argument so that people understand that there the is something is here. Protective... That's exactly yeah. right. And it, it doesn't, it's not afforded that status across the country. It's mm-hmm. just not. And 
you can then turn around and say, okay, well, look, foxes are now part, and this is, I know this from Arian and, and Adam, you can turn around and say, well, foxes are also now part of that because they've been here so long. As, as Charlie pointed out, since the 1800s, they've been here. You know, we brought them here. That, that's a long existence in this country in terms of how long we've been here. Um, and we're not eradicating them. So and we're not. We're not. So we're it's not gonna get it's, there. it's yeah. not. We're not. So to so you can either follow what we've always done, which has proven not to work, or you can change what we've done, and that requires a complete change in thinking, a real paradigm shift. And I, I accept that that's the case, mm. but there is no way forward unless we do that. We we cannot continue to base everything we do. On what we've done in the past, we're just we're just re- we'll, we'll end up in the same situation that we've ended up with the cane toad in Queensland. You know that that's that's where we're headed. It, it, it it's got to change. And regardless of which camp that you fall into, ten eighty is not a responsible solution by any measure. It, it, first and foremost, it's incredibly inhumane. Everybody knows it. Even the people that use it a lot will tell you it's very inhumane. It's proven. And the RSPCA state it's inhumane. Absolutely, well. and and it's proven that it doesn't work. It's not a long term solution. There are non invasive methods out there, and and lastly, if you want to use an economic argument of how much effect that the, these animals foxes have against livestock, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, let's look at how much how many dollars we've spent on 1080 programs across the country since the late 1950s, since we've started using it here, in large numbers. We would have spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, on using a, a, a Class A poison, a Schedule 7 poison on the UN's list that is ineffective and inhumane. How much would it cost from now on if we decide that we adopt a completely different method, say non-invasive sterilisation techniques, if that's the path we want to go down? Balance that, because the economic argument that I've had presented to me is, oh, that's too expensive and too time-consuming. Well, how much money have you spent already? What are you looking at continuing to spend? Your economic argument just doesn't balance. Do you want to add to that, Charlie, is the way ahead? No, look, absolutely. I mean, we would certainly like to see a move towards new technology. There's technology out there, and it's very unfortunate, I guess, in Australia that we are hanging on so tightly to the kind of archaic methods that are, yeah, that are being banned in other countries in the world. I mean, it's bizarre to me that we are one of the last countries still using 1080 bait um, and that this sort of indiscriminate poison that affects so many animals um, Mm. is being handed out so freely. Um, Mm. We would certainly love to see the reinstatement of um, rescue permits to work with foxes in captivity, you know, that are in need um, right across Australia, not just in New South Wales, um, but certainly to further that, um, the idea of trap, neuter, release or sterilisation programs um, would be absolutely fantastic. We know that it works in urban areas exceptionally well in feral cat or wild cat populations um, and it might work similarly for urban foxes as well. Mm. Um, and just more research into the ways that, that foxes do interact with the environment. So if we're looking at the way that dingoes and foxes interact and how we can nurture and encourage dingo populations and therefore sort of reduce fox numbers, there are so many other ways... Um, where the science actually stacks up. The science doesn't stack up when it comes to 1080 bait. It's, it's cruel, it's inhumane, and it's, it's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, you are on 3CR at five am Freedom of Species, and we're nearly about to wrap up, but I, I kind of, I didn't want to 
leave the show today without us talking about some stories that you might have, Charlie, just so listeners out there can get a feel for people wouldn't normally associate them as individuals like their pet dog. Have you got any stories that, you know, shows that foxes are indeed individual personalities that you'd like to share with us? Oh, gosh. Look, they're they're all individuals, that's for sure. And and I think what's interesting, um, I will tell a bit of a, a story about one of our one of our companion foxes or one of our foxes who's at the sanctuary and um, and lives in captivity. But I think first I sort of wanted to talk about the sort of stories we hear on a day-to-day basis about wild foxes as well. So I think that's what um, often surprises people is that people do really connect with foxes in the wild as well, that we get a lot of stories of foxes playing with people's dogs in parks in the evening, uh, stealing golf balls on golf courses, um, you know, people who maybe leave food out for foxes or when they see that a fox um, has parasites or has mange, you know, they want to be able to treat that and, and try and help wild foxes. And that's been really heartwarming to see uh, the public sort of having that compassion for an animal despite, you know, decades of anti-fox propaganda and misinformation being put out there by the government. To see people still connecting with wild foxes um, in their own environment um, and, and not just necessarily seeing them as having to be in a companion setting in order for their lives to be worthwhile. Um, yeah, so one of the foxes um, that we have here at, here at the rescue, who's a, a pretty exceptional um, little guy, came to us from up near the border of Queensland. So it was a, a quite a long way when we first got a call about, about Winnie. Um, he'd actually been handed into a vet. Um, and the vet had originally thought that he was a kitten, and it's quite likely being in a rural area that the reason that Winnie wasn't put to sleep um, was that he was seen as a more favourable introduced species, was that they thought he was a kitten, Um, and he was sent home to a kitten carer. Um, For people who don't realise, foxes are completely black when they're they're born or very, very dark brown. Um, And so under the assumption he was a kitten, he went to this kitten carer, and it actually took her two or three days to go... Mm, this is a very odd kitten. Um, <laughs> eyes closed, ears closed. He did look like a kitten, but he didn't behave like a kitten and he didn't smell like a kitten. Um, <laughs> they do have a very strong musk scent. Um, and she called us and she sent me a photo of this tiny little creature who weighed about 70 grams. And he was the smallest fox we'd ever seen. And um, I looked at the photos and went, oh, well, I don't know if that's a fox. We've never had one that small. It could be, or it could be a kitten, or it could be, you know, a, a, a small breed dog. And I said, well, look, can you smell him? Okay, he does smell musky. It's probably a fox. We'll get in the car. We'll drive up. You know, we spend the day and, and see what whether we can do something to help and, and what sort of animal we might be looking at. And, and we did we did sort of find, you know, go up and he, he was a fox and, and she was, you know, this carer who was in a rural area was had really bonded with him and said that, you know, it was quite a unique experience for her because she never thought she'd find herself looking after a fox. Um, and I think it really did change her her opinion of foxes spending time with this, this little vulnerable creature um, who really wasn't that different to any other baby animal in need of help. Um, and so we, we brought him back down to the rescue and, and the volunteers sort of hand-reared him. He was bottle-fed around the clock, um, had a couple of emergency vet visits when he stopped eating and things like that. And, um, and you know, my partner at the time would say, you know, oh, when will we know if he's going to live, Charlie? I don't want to get attached to him if he's going to die. And I go, I just don't know. He's so tiny. Um, 
and he did. He survived, and and he's become a real ambassador, I think, for the rescue because he he's very strongly bonded to people. He he probably thinks he's a cat if anything, because we do have a lot of rescue cats as well. Um, <laughs> he's definitely more fond of people than foxes. He rolls over for belly rubs. He wags his tail. When we were still allowed to take them off the property, which has changed now with the legislation, he used to come with us to the dog beach, to the dog park. He used to ride in his little car harness on the front seat. Um, and I think he really exceeded everyone's expectations of, of what a fox could be and the sort of bond that a fox could have with, with humans given given that opportunity. And we're certainly not in favour of exotic pets and, and certainly nobody should be breeding exotic animals to live in captivity but when you have an animal like Winnie who was an orphan who had nowhere else to go um, you know he should have we do think that foxes should have that same opportunity in the same way that an orphan kitten or a feral kitten can be taken in and can be nurtured and cared for and, and live you know live in captivity he's defects now he has a secure enclosure um, he's not doing any harm to anyone and he has an opportunity to actually show people another side to foxes and to, to play a role in education and, and that building of compassion um, in the next generation. That's excellent. And what's his name? Winnie. Winnie, Winnie or sorry, winter. Winnie. Winter, because he was very winter. early in that. He was born in winter, which is unusual. That is foxes, so beautiful. So. Um, yeah. Before you go, Charlie, can you just give us a bit of um, an announcement about your... You've got this great holiday program coming up in July. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so coming into uh, the next New South Wales school holiday period, um, the second week of the holidays, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, we'll be running a holiday program. Um, we we can't bring the foxes to the program, unfortunately, <laughs> but we do bring some of our other animals who are available for adoption. So we bring um, some of our rescue dingoes. Um, last holidays we brought our little rescue ferrets, um, one of our rescue rabbits and some rescue cats. Um, we um, we also often will do a Skype phone call with the foxes so the kids can meet some of the volunteers and the foxes back at the rescue centre. And we, we try to do um, a, a bit of education around compassionate conservation. We look at where introduced species come from, what they're doing here now, and what the difference you know between native and introduced species are, and, and a bit of a look at um, the role that humans and climate change have on the environment in Australia as well. And then you know, as well as spending time with the animals, we try to do a lot of fun things, so craft activities and outside games and, yeah, and yeah. just Excellent. have an all-round sort of fun day for the kids, um, yeah, where they can spend some time with animals and, and do some sort of learning that's uh, a bit unique, I guess, or a bit different. And you hope they walk away with that extra... extra yeah, um, with that added yeah. amount of, you know, compassion for different animals and... and, and broadening their sort of horizons and understanding of ecology and animals in Australia and, and the sort of unique animals that we do have here, both native and introduced, and, and the role that we have to play in looking after animals in our environment. Fantastic. And where do they go to find out more about that, Charlie? Yeah, absolutely. So they can check out our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash sydneyfoxrescue, um, or they can send us through an email directly at sydneyfoxrescue at gmail.com. Um, and there's an event up on the Facebook page and we can send out a little information flyer and um, it'll be held in Redfern in, in the inner suburbs in Sydney. How fantastic. God, if I lived in Sydney, I'd just <laughs> pinch someone else's kids for the day and take them yeah, to that school yeah, holiday oh, look, program. Absolutely. How fantastic. Parents can definitely come along as well. A lot of parents do stay and spend time with the animals too, so it's Excellent. not just for kids. <laughs> Charlie, can I ask you, look, we've got two petitions running. There's a national petition running 
uh, set up by Marilyn Noski to Barnaby Joyce uh, on change.org, Rex Betty's and Kenya's petition to ban 1080 in Australia. Mm. Mm. And there's another petition specifically for Victoria sent to Yala Pulford, and people can find that on the petition site.com. Do you have a petition running in New South Wales? And if you do, what's the address for that? Yeah, we do. So we, we've um, only recently started... Um, campaigning against 1080, and we've we've started, I guess, with our own local area around the rescue in New South Wales, with the intention of really building that up and getting other community leaders and community groups to get involved in starting grassroots campaigns in their own area. So ours is on change.org, and it's the stop the use of 1080 um, poison in the Woolundilly Shire Council. So if people type in Woolundilly Shire Council 1080, um, it should come up on change.org. Cheers for that. Right, we'll have to skedaddle. Thank you so much, Charlie. Thank you so much, Andy. And we'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.